Happy New Year, church. As my beautiful mother-in-law said, my name is Peter, and I serve on the team of elders that leads the church, soon to be alongside our deacon team, which is really exciting for us. It's a huge step for our church, seeing God really fulfill his promise to raise up leaders. And so today we're kicking off our preaching series that correlates with our week of fasting that we start tonight with our worship service at 5 p.m. We're going to share more about that at the end of the service. But tonight, we uh, start this week of fasting with the theme, Amazing Grace. That's the focus that every church in every nation, every nation, the, the ministry name that we're a part of, Every church in our Every Nation family is focused on amazing grace being the theme of our whole week. And for the next three weeks, it's the theme of our preaching series that we're doing together. So thousands of Every Nation churches are focused on this same theme of amazing grace. And tens of thousands of people in our churches this morning in church are going to this same scripture that we're going to. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. You can turn to Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 15. We'll go to the end of the chapter. So Romans 5, 15 through 21. But the free gift, everyone say free gift, free gift. is not like the trespass. Everyone say trespass. The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but... The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also may reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, in light of how we've sinned against you and in light of the judgment we deserve from you, Jesus, the mercy that we see in you is truly 
remarkable. So open our eyes to see grace. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message today is the same as the title and theme of our series, and that is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is one of the most well-known and beloved hymns in the world today. Written in 1772 by John Newton, the lyrics of Amazing Grace serve as somewhat of an autobiography of Newton's life. He was raised as a Christian, but Newton, as a young man, renounced his Christianity and chose a life that was increasingly rebellious and shameful. And the sad tragedy and irony of his life, like mine as a younger man, and yours and the world's, is as he tried to pursue freedom, or the false freedom of a life unhindered by religion in his eyes, or unhindered by the so-called restrictions of faith, his life nonetheless led to bondage and slavery, both internally, but also, sadly, externally. He literally began to operate slave ships. But by the grace of God, while on one of these ships en route to another shameful portage somewhere over the Atlantic, the ship, by the hand of God, I would say, became shipwrecked. And in the middle of that trial, landbound, the Lord spoke to Newton. And Newton gave his life to Jesus and placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of his sin. Decades later, uh, he even befriended a, a young politician named William Wilberforce in the early 1800s. And his influence in Wilberforce's life was fundamental in Wilberforce's uh, leading the charge for three or four more decades after that in abolishing the entire transatlantic slave trade. The, really, the story of the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade and the interplay and the relationship between John Newton and the younger William Wilberforce is recorded in a recent movie that's aptly named Amazing Grace. It's, it's amazing because of the context of what John Newton understood to be grace in light of his sin. In fact, in that same time period, as he was an older man, he was a clergyman for the Anglican Church. John Newton wrote the lyrics to this treasured hymn. And notably, there's one other irony in this story that's so beautiful. He went blind. Newton went blind as an older man. So for years, he would sing with a beautiful irony these lyrics. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And he'd sing... I once was blind, but now I see. Although in the natural, it was the opposite. Newton was able to write these words, church, because he experienced grace firsthand. And he knew God's grace was amazing because he understood himself to have been a wretch. See, he knew who he was in light of sin and in light of grace. And as we go into this new year, I pray that God would give us an understanding 
of who we really are in light of sin and in light of grace. But my concern is that we become all too familiar with words like grace and Bible words and Bible concepts and phrases. We don't share the same life experience as Newton, but we can share the same understanding from God. If we're not careful, we can become familiar with Bible words and phrases, and they can become reduced to kind of mere doctrinal words. We don't see that we desperately need the grace that we sing about. We don't understand that it's to be saved from judgment, for instance. We become increasingly familiar and yet at the same time unclear. I kind of liken this to my understanding of the word communication when someone was talking about it to me in premarital counseling, right? Be like, all right, man, communication is one of those really important things in marriage. And uh, this was back 15 years ago, guys, when I wasn't so wise like today, right? And some of you, they'd be like, all right, man, you need communication. I'd be like, okay, got that. What next? Because I understood communication, right? I talk a lot, so I got it. And uh, <laughs> I didn't understand until I was married, the context of why I needed communication. It wasn't, the, it wasn't the act of communicating. It was understanding all the things that I needed to communicate. Now my life is like totally bound and, and interconnected and, and tied together with this other person's human being's life. And like everywhere I go, like I, I need to communicate that. And things I'm thinking and money I'm spending, like communication. And now I understand what I didn't understand at least. So I can grow in that. And like that, as we relate to the Bible and doctrines and church words and things like that, I think that unless this is your first time in church, in fact, even if it is your first time in church, this danger of unclear familiarity bleeds into our understanding of God and his word, where infinitely rich words and concepts become familiar to us and remain unclear. Words like love can be implicitly reduced to just human passions. Grace, you know, well, what's grace? Oh, well, it's, you know, it's those obligatory words that you say so you can eat, right? Say grace. Or at best, grace can sometimes be reduced to, you know, like low-key kindness, right? Like, come on, dude, show me some grace here. Okay, I can show you some kindness, but that's that's not what grace is in, in Romans 5 here. And so understanding this today, I want to teach through our passage in a way that I've never done before. You know, it's one of those, uh, you can do anything once axioms. Let's see if I ever do this again. I don't know. Today, I want to build on the context of the message at whole, kind of the overarching message of this passage by piecing together the message from the meaning of a few different words or phrases that are repeated over and over again in our passage. And my hope is that the same God who showed himself to John Newton would transformatively show us the meaning of these phrases in the context of our lives. So the first word I want to unpack is the word trespass at least seven or eight times, is mentioned, woven through our passage. 
trespass interplays with the, the word sin and the concept of sin in our passage here. It can just be, mean, be brought to mean this. Here's my summary of what trespass and sin is. It's what a person has done or does in transgressing the will and law of God by some false step or failure. These can be thoughts. These can be words. But what God wants, I do something else. And so we need to zoom out to understand this word. I need to zoom, we need to zoom out and see Romans 5 as a whole. Paul uses two different stories in the Bible that serve as sort of a backdrop to his whole argument about grace. It's the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, and then the story of Christ dying on the cross, which is declared in the Gospels. And our passage builds on the contrast between these two competing stories. That's why the, the very first words of our, of our passage, verse 15, declares this, the free gift is not like the trespass. So, so the whole passage is an interplay between the free gift story of the cross versus the lesser story of the trespass and of sin. The whole passage is kind of putting these two things in the cage or the octagon, if that's your thing, against one another and seeing over and over again why grace defeats sin. So we need to understand the story of sin in its right context. Genesis 3, we see the story of the fall, that serpent tempts Eve to disobeying God's command, to believing in her heart that maybe the promise of God is, is not all that you need. Right? And lest we think that this is some disconnected story from long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, we are tempted to think that maybe the promise of God isn't enough for us too. So Eve believed in her heart, maybe, maybe this is true, maybe God you know, is holding out on me, and she believed that there's something better than God, and she took and she ate and she offered it to her husband, and we take and we eat and we disbelieve much like her because of the sin the first trespass of Adam and Eve. See, the relationship between God and his creation was fractured in this moment. They fell into sin, and all humanity fell with them in the lineage, in the fallen nature of this moment of rebellion. Dr. Brian Taylor is the the pastor of our Every Nation Church in Cincinnati, and he puts it this way. He says, we have all been not only affected by Adam's sin, but also infected by it as well. This is a key point. We follow not just the pattern of Adam and Eve. We, we follow the same lineage of disobedience in our hearts and our minds. So the trespass of Adam and Eve becomes the sin nature that infects all of us. So we sin by this same nature because of this first trespass but it's also by our selfish choice. So lest you think, oh, this is kind of 
It's like I'm some sort of robot that, that, that just does this because it's in our, my nature. No, I'm still responsible for my sinful and selfish choices. And this is the backdrop of human nature that Paul's talking about, this first story. Paul underlines this story, this painful contrast all throughout our passage. Every verse points out how the trespass affects us so profoundly. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Talking of Genesis 3, Adam. Verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass. Now, it says one man. We understand that it was Adam and Eve. But isn't it interesting how God, from the very first part to the very end in the Bible, holds men responsible for their sin? Even the silence of Adam, as he was right there next to his wife, allowing her to be tempted without speaking up. God is implicitly judging. So he holds a a man responsible distinctly more than his wife here. So I guess that's a whole other message, but just think about that for a second. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men or mankind. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many, all of us, were made sinners. So it's our nature. Verse 20, the the law came in to increase the trespass, really to shine a light on just how sinful we are. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death. So this is a really profound issue. And I think Paul is so repetitive because the same sin that he keeps reminding us is the same thing that tries to deceive us into thinking that our problem is really something else. Right? Well, it's, it's, it's my dad. It's the government. It's something else. It's not my sin. So he repetitively weaves this into the story. Not just to show how Jesus is the one final better man that we can stake our identity on, but also to show us the gravity, the radical nature of the corruption that we suffer under so that we can better understand grace. Again, like Newton in his moment of being shipwrecked, we can only see the shocking weight of grace against the backdrop of how deep Sin infects us. I'll put it to you like this. If I were to come to you, even if you knew me, you'd still be off put by this. If I were to say, hey, hey, I got a cure for you. Swallow this pill right now. You'd be like, dude, you're creeping me out. Get away from me. Ain't no way I'm swallowing that pill. See, no context of what the cure is for. But what if, what if the context were different? What if... you? One day you just woke up and you just had a sore throat. Later that day you just kept coughing. You couldn't stop coughing. By the next morning your, your cough just felt like just death. Every time you cough, you felt like you're, something inside you was just being torn apart. Two days later, you're sure you're dying. You, you go to the, the doctor and, and they, they do all sorts of blood work and you're waiting in the room just feeling like you're deteriorating. You see blood coming and 
in your cough. It's just, it's, you feel like death. Hours and hours waiting after the test in this doctor's office. And then you hear it's what, what seems like some sort of like alarm outside and outside the doctor's office in, in, the, in that, that procedure room outside. It, there's some sort of commotion outside. And then all of a sudden the door slowly opens after a long silence and the same doctor is like wearing this big mask and full-bodied suit. And he comes in and starts interrogating you, like, where have you been? Have you been on any flights recently? Uh, Tell me every person you've interacted with in the last week. Just a long interrogation tells you you have the Ebola virus. Then just kind of leaves you for a while, and you're just not knowing what to do. You're quarantined. And then, after a long silence, Alberto opens the door. <laughs> and Alberto, he, he's not wearing any sort of suit. He says, look, I got something better. I have just gained access from people I went to college with. I thought, you know, I thought my college degree with some sort of chemical, biological something that's what it is, something. That's exactly what it was called. I thought my degree was for nothing, but I got connections to get a hold of the first post-trial Ebola cure, and it's here for you. Take this. Now, you would, in that context, you would have a little bit more appreciation. Now, I understand that maybe the, the illustration breaks down because I think the, the, the newly vetted, uh, lots of hope, like, Vaccines. I think they're pre-symptomatic vaccines, but just go with me, okay? In that context, the cure would make more sense. And my concern is that we walk around telling people, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And maybe we're just too, uh, we don't want to kind of like be big bummers and talking about sin. But look, our lives talk enough about sin. We feel the effects of sin. We're we're grieved about the sin of other people. We're grieved about our own sin. We're already so self-condemning that maybe talking about the context a little bit as we talk about grace is very important. We must grasp the depth of sin and our problem in order to grasp the weight of how amazing grace really is. I've said this so many times and I'll never stop saying it. When I first went to a Bible study in 1997 when they were talking about sin, I had so much peace, even with so much grief. Because for the first time in my life, I wasn't just misdiagnosing my issues and making excuses accordingly. The Bible showed me for the first time so painfully accurately what was wrong with me and how it could be made right. So in light of that, the next word that I want to deeply unpack It's the word grace. It's also interplays with this word free gift. Almost like the same thing that he's talking about here. It can just simply mean this, that which is given freely and generously. Grace. So trespass and sin are how we displease God and we infect ourselves with this anti-God mindset and nature, and therefore God must judge us. He must castigate 
us or cast away from his presence beings that are violently opposed to his nature, his rule, his sacrificial love, his burning hot holiness. But, but grace is so confounding and so amazing because God grants us his favor and draws us near without betraying his justice or his holiness or his nature. And this very reality has confounded many a brilliant man and woman. On the cross, Jesus chooses to take upon himself the punishment we deserve though he was sinless. And that's the only way he can express his love and draw us near without betraying his justice and his holiness by drawing near people infected by this virus, if you will. See, Jesus had already lived the life that we should have lived. And so he was good. He wasn't under judgment. But he chose to come under judgment by dying the death that we should have died in our place. That's grace. So we can only see the beauty of grace amidst the backdrop of sin. That's why there's this interplay grammatically in our text. You can see the beauty of grace grammatically here. If you're a grammar geek, get ready. Buckle up. See, as we saw through repetition, Paul shows the relentless nature of sin But in the same repetition, he shows that God's grace is far more relentless. You see, the repetitive effects of sin are really reduced to just mere subordinate clauses in light of the overpowering nature of God's grace in the gospel. See, every sentence in our passage has a a verse, a clause, where grace bears down on and crushes the effects of sin. So verse 15, the grace of God and the free gift by grace, of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many or all. Verse 16, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 17, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is aptly called the greater Adam, the final Adam, some, some call him. Verse 18, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 19, by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, grace also reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, the whole flow of this passage is to show how the free gift comes through his grace in a much more infectious and human nature transforming way than how sin infected us at birth through Adam and his trespass. See, it says in our passage that through Adam, we were all made sinners. But Jesus' death and resurrection makes us forever saints. And his gift is profoundly more transformative than sin. See, in faith, by grace, through faith, as Paul says in Ephesians, we become his. We belong to the perfect lamb of God. And that's our new nature. That's our redeemed nature. And nothing can degenerate us ever again. 
Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hands, out of the Father's hands. So all of this leads me to unpack our, our third phrase, our final phrase that I want to unpack. Just knowing how the contrast between trespass and grace flows throughout our passage. There's one phrase that I want to unpack that is, is used as, as, a, as an argument of confidence. And that is these words, much more. Much more. It's an argument from extreme confidence. So verse 15, much more did the grace of God abound. Verse 17, much more those who received the abundance of grace. Verse 20, grace abounded all the more. Similar words to much more. Now there's a, uh, I say Italian, there's a Latin. It sounds, if you say it with an Italian accent, Argumentum a fortiori. There's this Italian phrase used to describe this type of argument of using something larger to basically swallow up a smaller argument. Argumentum a fortiori is a form of this argumentation that draws upon an existing confidence in a proposition to argue in favor of a second proposition that is held implicit in the first. So basically, if God can do a million amazing things, God can do one more amazing thing, right? It's, it's like that. If God can perform the most impossible and ridiculous metaphysical miracle, why can't he help you? If God can save Saul of Tarsus, who was a violent arch enemy of his, why can't he save your brother or your mom? Or elsewhere in scripture, if Jesus fed 5,000 miraculously with a Lunchable, how can he not provide for your needs? Maybe you've grown to understand your monthly budget in a new year. But we need to grow in understanding the power of God's provision. God sent fire to Elijah's altar. So he can bring revival to your workplace and to your neighborhood and to your family. God calmed the sea so he can calm your heart. God raised Jesus from the dead and he can heal you. See, this is this argument that's given in this contrast in words to help swallow up the first story with the redemption of the second story, much more. See, we can, we can grieve the effects of trespasses in the world, but much more are we to rejoice in the grace of God. Not just kind of forgetting and pretending like sin isn't a thing, but seeing the smallness of it in light of the greatness of God's mercy and grace. My favorite place where this much more argument is given is just a few chapters after our passage in Romans 8. This much more argument. End of Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him, or basically, how much more will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You see the much more in this? I'm going to keep going. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So church, I don't know how you're trying to encourage yourself going from 2019 to 2020. Maybe you're telling yourself like, hey, it's a new season. It's a new year. Things are going to be better this year. And if anything, nothing bad's going to happen and everything's great. And I want to warn you, if that is the foundation of your hope, you will be quickly disappointed. But you can realistically, not pessimistically, realistically say, look, if anything bad happens, much more can I lean on the grace of God, the bottomless well, which is his power, his comfort, his favor, his anointing. And you can boast out loud against any devil in hell who would try to give you fear about your life. By quoting scripture, much more than you listen to the fears in your head. And here's one of the reasons why going into this new year, and I think aptly starting the new year with fasting, I think it's important for us to focus in on these comparative words, much more. We tend to, I don't know how old this this tradition is, where we start the year with New Year's resolutions, and I don't think there's anything wrong with resolutions. I just think that there's something uh, futile with resolutions that are minimal or resolutions that have to do with things that we abstain from. Maybe you're resolving this year to abstain from certain things. Maybe, maybe, maybe certain trespasses in your life transgressions that you know displease the Lord. But much more should you pursue the grace of God. Pursue God. And that's what fasting is all about. We've said before, fasting is trading something visible, something seen for something supernatural. You trade something natural for something supernatural. If you're not receiving the other end of that trade... You're just doing one of those other fad diets that never works for anyone anyway. It's not fasting. Fasting is not about the things that we abstain from. It's about the one we're pursuing. 
It's not about anything that we're trying to avoid. It's the one that we run to in a special way. So fasting without a supernatural expectation of God's presence and his nearness is just starving yourself. It's not fasting. How much more should we pursue God? Don't just settle for, uh, I'm, I'm not doing the bad stuff. Who are we pursuing? How about the good stuff? How about Jesus and more of his power? Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine. But it doesn't stop there. It says, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So don't just stop at abstinence. Seek his preeminence to fill everything in your life. Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil. But it doesn't stop there. But overcome evil with good. Wait, we can do that? Yes, we've got some stuff that's better than all the other stuff the world has. We have the the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we can conquer, not just try not to be conquered. How much more can we pursue the heart of God instead of just taking a small break from lesser things? So that's why we are starting off this fast by pursuing together the heart of God. It is a tradition, and I pray for you that it's a tradition by faith, that tonight at 5 p.m., I don't, if you're a cowboy fan, here's a special blessing for you. God made sure that your cowboys kind of did what they always do, sorry, so that you can be freed up tonight. You don't have to watch the Eagles maybe win. You can pursue God. We can start off our week of fasting by saying, before I abstain from something on Monday, I'm going to pursue the God that I I am reserving myself for tonight. And we can do that together. It's 5 p.m. to 6. Now, today at the end of our service, Alberto is going to give more specific instructions about how we can specifically access help and our guides and things for how to go about fasting. Because... Please get some help. If you've never fasted before and you think, oh, I'm just going to stop drinking water and, and eating food for five days, don't do that. Please, please get one of our fasting guides. He's going to explain how to do that by the end of our service, and let's pursue God together. As we close, I want to remind you that when we're talking about pursuing God, I want to remind you that we are pursuing someone who first pursued us when we were pursuing darkness. He came into a world of darkness and emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and lived a perfect life to serve us when we were serving the devil. He lived a perfect life to pay for the effects of our trespass. And he became our substitute on the cross And he rose again from the dead on the third day. And so as we empty ourselves and we pursue him, we are celebrating Easter and Christmas all at the same time, even as we are abstaining in a fast. And there's no greater key to remember how we empty ourselves of anything else and receive sustenance in Jesus. There's no better key to remember that than the reminder he left us with at the Last Supper. Would you stand to your feet with me?